The Dublab Spring Membership Drive is happening now and throughout the month of May. If you enjoy the Dublab archives, help us continue by donating today and become a member. For more details, visit dublab.com slash membership. Hello and welcome to In Conversation, a Dublab podcast where each week we will bring you interviews from the Dublab radio archives. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Elevation Through Sound. This is your host, Ali, live here from Los Angeles. You're listening to Dublab Radio on dublab.com on the internet at 99.1 LPFM here in parts of Los Angeles, soon to be reaching out even further away on KZUT. Uh, today we have a very special um, uh, well, very special guest host, a longtime friend, uh, Zen Sekizawa, and uh, three guests that she's bringing uh, that are going to be um, performing live, sharing some stories, sharing some music, and uh, really looking forward to it. We have Nobuko Miyamoto, uh, Atomic Nancy uh, Sekizawa, who's not the first time here. Uh, she's been here many times. And we have Mia Yamamoto also uh playing live and also joining in the conversation and uh, they're going to be uh, talking about the music in the Asian uh, American movement and more so with no further delay I'll introduce to Zen she's gonna get on the microphone and get on it right away so thank you for tuning in this is Dublab Elevation Through Sound your host Ale with Zen Zekisawa today guest hosting the program hey Zen hey Ale thanks so much for having us um I was just saying that we've known each other for 17 years, which is incredible, and uh, and you guys are having your 18th year anniversary, which is amazing. Um, I feel like I've been here almost from the beginning. Uh, what a crazy show. I have people that have been in my life forever, because I have my mom, um, and also people who have been in my life for since I've been a child, so uh, I, it feels very great to be here surrounded by my family my extended family and my dub lab family um oh my god I'm so nervous <laughs> so um today we have some live performances from um three incredible Japanese American legends in my opinion uh we're gonna have some uh interviews we're gonna talk about things um and I think we're going to have a really good casual conversation. I love how both Novoko and my mom are filming me right now <laughs> on their iPhones. Um, let's see. Let's do some. Let's do some introductions. Uh, you know, I think uh, it's so incredible to hear, or it's going to be really great to hear about how you, um, about all the different ways that you um, have had this crazy journey um and it's shaped your individual stories and what music has played uh and um how you chose to express yourself um and also how your work uh goes beyond the japanese american community and i think that's really fascinating um so first i'd like to introduce uh mia yamamoto transgender criminal defense attorney and civil rights activist. Uh, 
She has been in practice since 1972 uh, and is one of the most distinguished and successful criminal defense attorneys in Southern California. <laughs> um, secondly, I have Mia, Mia Yamamoto. Gosh, I'm nervous. Here we go. <laughs> Mia Yam Nobuko Miyamoto, <laughs> uh, an artivist who uses her songs, theater, dance work as a means of social change. Member of Grain of Sand, which is known as the soundtrack for the Asian American movement, and founder of Great Leap, a multicultural arts organization that expresses a contemporary voice for the Asian American experience and promotes cross-cultural exchange. Lastly, I have my mom, Atomic Nancy Sekizawa, uh, owner and the heart and soul of the historic punk institution, the Atomic Cafe, member of Hiroshima, also <clears throat> member of Great Leap with Novuko, a uh, fame choir member, drug addiction counselor. Hi, everybody. Hello. Hi, Zen. Hi, Zen. Should, I wear, should I wear these headphones? Okay, I'll wear them. You wear them? Yeah. Okay, you wear them. <laughs> um, thanks for being here. Uh, how, uh, how do you guys know each other? I'd never asked this question, and I think it's really a cool... <laughs> it's really awesome to hear this story since I've known each other for so long. I met Nancy when she was 16 years old. I was introduced to her by Evelyn Yoshimura at the Atomic Cafe. I had just gotten out of the military, um, and um, I know she was dating a comrade of mine, uh, and uh, I remember thinking, what a nice person, she's this waitress at the Atomic Cafe. And then I go out an, a few nights later, and Hiroshima's gonna be playing, right? And the lead singers, that waitress from the Atomic Cafe, I couldn't believe it. She had the most dazzling stage presence I'd ever seen for somebody so young, what a dynamo. So, I met her a long time ago, and we've been through our um, <clears throat> journey together in a lot of ways. We've touched, touched, gotten close uh, over the years, and uh, obviously I love her uh, so much. It's ridiculous. And, um, and Nobuko, I actually took a dance class from her back in the day over at Centenary Methodist. When they were over in Normandy and Jefferson, back in the day she that was That was teaching, a Senshin Buddhist was, temple. Was it Senshin? Okay. <laughs> this shows you what happens. You get old, you know? <laughs> So she was teaching African dance at the time, but she's always been an icon in the community in terms of dance, certainly. And then music, I used to go see her uh, play with Chris, uh, you, and um, Charlie. Charlie. Mm -hmm. And so they were like part of the folk music of our, of our community and our generation. So, you know, we've been knowing each other a long time, you know, really. That's incredible. And then how did Nobuko and Nancy meet? <laughs> Well, I saw Nancy also in Long Beach performing with Hiroshima in 19, I think it was 1970. And I saw this young woman who was just an amazing presence on the stage, uh, just playing this, uh, the bells and, and uh, very uh, accomplished and outgoing for anybody, but especially for a Japanese American. Uh, it was quite exceptional, and I could see why they called her Atomic Nancy. I didn't know <laughs> then about the restaurant, but <laughs> I, I could see why they called her Atomic Nancy. That's amazing. Um, do you remember meeting anybody for the first time? <laughs> of course. Um, with Mia, I remember 
and I heard coming into the cafe, and I was around 16 at the yeah. time. And Mia would always just like you know hang out and at the counter mm -hmm. and order food, <laughs> and we would just talk. And uh, and I would see her in the community. Uh, but what my involvement with the both of you really started was actually seeing Nobuko at a protest and seeing Charlie and uh, Chris and you perform for the LT Pro, Little Tokyo mm -hmm. Service Pro Act protest. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we were just, uh, I was just young and just finding my, you know, groove of where I'm, where I'm at. And uh, actually it was you, Nobuko, that kind of like said, yeah, I really dig her. <clears throat> you know, I, you know, I am Asian American and I should be proud of who I am, you know, so. It was all about, yeah, okay. And then finding, you know, Evelyn Yoshimura and then you. And I see, yeah, and as an activist, both of you were pretty much involved in, you know, uh, taking a stand on, you know, justice. So that's what I really dug about that. That's cool. Yeah. And that was over 40 years ago, right? <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. And, and around 1970. Early yeah. 1970s. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think it's so special that you guys are still... Standing. St <laughs> yeah. just standing. Standing and singing and still working, you know, in this movement. And, um, yeah, it's very inspiring. And still friends, which is really <laughs> special. Mm -hmm. Um, anyways, uh, well, thank you for being here. Uh, so, Mia, um, let's just talk about... Yes, <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about your history. Um, it's, it's so fascinating. Everybody's history is pretty fascinating, but um, let's talk about your history, uh, how you came uh, to where you are today. Sure. I think for all transgender people... That sense of identity uh, is established very early. Like most other people, five or six years old, um, being raised up East L.A., um, family being Japanese-American, the one thing that always united the family and all the community was the camps. Every single one of us had just gotten out of jail, and basically we all kind of bonded around that. People would ask each other, oh, what camp was you in? Did you know so-and-so? Like what high school you went to. So it, that, that period of time, being Japanese, was a very beleaguered thing in many ways. You know, I, I didn't like speaking Japanese. I didn't even learn, because that was so uncool back in East L.A., to be honest. It, just as much as it was being a Jap back in East L.A., just getting all that kind of abuse from people after the war. So in the event, I think the good thing about being trans at an early age like that and understanding it was being Japanese was no picnic either. Being any kind of a minority in any situation, but being Japanese right after World War II was a particularly dangerous and difficult time. So, growing up through that whole period of time, and I think the one thing I have in common with all transgender and probably all queer people, all LGBT people, is a sense of depression and not belonging, a sense of dislocation, and a sense of displacement with respect to where you are and what you're supposed to be. And uh, growing up through that is a pretty depressing experience for any kid, not knowing that you're connected. So, my experience was completely without the internet, without other people. Mm. Um, <clears throat> I didn't realize it was such a thing as a transgender person. I didn't realize it was even a name for it until I was probably in my teens someplace. So, you know, I buried that pretty deep and uh, did what most transgender people do. They try to overcompensate. They try to be as male as possible. And maybe even my, 
you know, enthusiasm in terms of going into the military during the Vietnam War was maybe a part of that, you know, maybe as well as um, sort of a death wish maybe also. But um, the issue of transgender people in the military is current right now, and it needs to be dealt with by people like myself who do have experience in the military, who were, went through the military, served in, in, uh, in a war, that um, this fool that's sitting in the White House, chicken hawk, coward, draft dodger, is nobody to tell this country who can serve this country, yeah. who can fight for this country, who's willing to sacrifice for this country. I want to just say that because it was unlawful for transgender people, for LGBT people to serve in the, in the military, and we'd get kicked out if they found out then the history of that community's contributions in so many wars all through history has been erased. It's been obliterated because it's been denied. I can tell you because my experience is there's tons of LGBT people in the military. Anybody who's been in the military will tell you that. We know they're there. We're cool with it. We're cool with them. Mm -hmm. We're cool with anybody that's got my back. And so the idea that we can't serve in the military when we've served successfully, when we've made great contributions, great sacrifices, and great courage is coming from a person with limited information, little data. He's one of these people who is a low data decider because he's a fool. So that issue, I just want to elevate the issue from the point of view of a veteran. I served my year in Vietnam. I saw war. I'm not proud of it. I don't think it was a just war, but I didn't answer the call of my country. And that's about it, basically. But I feel like it actually gives me my platform to talk back to the president when he says we're not fit to serve. Right. <clears throat> Incredible. Um, and then how does music play into all of this in, in you know, for you? M- music, I think for a lot of people, the arts, whether it's writing, whether it's dance, whatever it is, is an outlet that expresses things that can't be can't be expressed any other way. And without that, there's like a a pressure cooker that's really not getting released at all, ever. You need something with the kind of, from my point of view, the kind of fire and fury that can be expressed in music and can be expressed in dance and some of the more lively arts where people's bodies are involved. So I think that a lot of LGBT people, and I I don't mean to speak for all, all of us, but I am an LGBT person, so I feel like I am part of that community. I speak for a lot of them. There's a lot of creative people there, and I think it comes from that kind of that kind of seething frustration that comes from not being allowed to express your identity, not being allowed to express your authenticity. Yeah, I think that's great. Uh, it makes so much sense. Do you want to talk about um, the song you're going to sing for us today? Yeah, I want to sing um, <clears throat> 41 Shots, American Skin. It's a song about a man by the name of Amadou Diallo. He was a 23-year-old immigrant man from Guinea, and he happened to be on um, the street, actually, in New York City. And there was a New York City (coughs) task force that was out looking for a particular serial rapist. And these guys, these police officers, were in plain clothes in a plain, unmarked van. They came upon this man. They thought he was somebody else. He went for his wallet. He knew the drill. They're going to ask for his ID. Lift up the wallet, and they shot at him 41 times. They hit him 19 times. And the song, the song is a dirge, and it's a song that was written in memory of somebody who shouldn't really be forgotten. His death was so senseless. I mean, I kept picturing myself on that porch, four white guys in a van, yelling at me, pointing guns at me. I know they're cops. I lift up my wallet. I'm dead. 
want to talk about what do you think about where we are today with transgender issues? What are you working on right now? Well, you know, I came out um, 2003, which is now going on about 15 years. So I've turned into the transgender person. Right. <laughs> so that means I do a lot of lecturing. I do a lot of, um, certainly a lot of presentations with respect to understanding about it. I do uh, elimination of bias in the profession, in the legal profession. Um, but I think my view of where I am in the struggle is that my community is under attack. And um, from my point of view, that's fine because I've already been a part of every other struggle that people have been targeted by. So this, you know, this Trump stuff basically is, has been attacking women, attacking disabled people. Um, I have been down with every single one of those groups in the very beginning. Every single time he targets somebody, whether it's Muslims, immigrants, Mexicans, um, I am totally in solidarity with those people. So by the time he got around to the transgender people, well, I figured I'm already down. Yeah. You know, I'm already against this person and I'm going to do everything I can to bring down this regime. So where I am right now, as far as I'm concerned, is I'm sort of like going out trying to find people for coalition because if all of us are under attack, then we all have to be in unity in order to fight back because you pick out little minority groups and it's always the case. Every minority group has to be able to convince allies of the justice in our cause to motivate them to stand with us, to speak up for us, and to march with us when the time comes. So I always feel like I'm doing a little bit every day to fight back against the oppression, mm -hmm. against the marginalization of people, against the attacks on immigrants, mm -hmm. on the attacks on people of color, and of course, my LGBT community. So I'm getting it from a bunch of directions anyway, is the way I look at it. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. you know I feel like I have my role to play, and all of us do. We've been activists since the jump, since there's been activism. So we always know that we have to be engaged, we have to be involved. It's just a question of how. And I feel like I'm trying to do this multicultural sort of organizing with respect to opposition to Trump and opposition to the Republican regime. Mm -hmm. And um, it's a work in progress. Yeah. <laughs> we just got to figure out the best way to come together, what's going to energize and motivate people, what's going to get people to stand up and march, get them to stand out and vote and help other people to vote. Um, all these things need to happen, and all of us are just a little part of it. But I thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to get on the radio and uh, speak out to people about this issue that I need to be out there. And I always say that, yeah, I'm a transgender woman. I'm open and notorious because I got to be there in order to help other people. But I want them to know what side I'm on and why. If I can actually reach out to people and and maybe just get them thinking a little bit. That's what these songs are about. These songs are about, um, 41 Shots is definitely about Black Lives Matter. It's all about that. Because they are a movement, um, they are at the vanguard of the civil rights movement that every single one of us has benefited from. And uh, we owe it to the black community to stand up for them and to speak out because they are at the vanguard of this movement and they're taking a lot of grief. Mm -hmm. So the unfinished business of a movement that we've all been a part of really rests a great deal in the black community. The civil rights movement was driven by the movement for black liberation, continues in that regard, and it's still unfinished business. So I feel like we've got to keep elevating the profile of that issue. We've got to stand with Colin Kaepernick. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you know, my wife is making me boycott the NFL until they sign the dude. <laughs> 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 I boycott it. You know, I'm boycotting. 
I'm tempted to peek, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> but I haven't, okay. <laughs> um, so I think that that's where I am with respect to my activism. My focus at the moment uh, certainly is on racial reconciliation, racial justice, but uh, justice for everyone. And that means getting rid of these fools in the White House and their minions, all the people that are in complicity with this right-wing surge, with this rise of fascism. Every single one of them needs to be defeated at the polls. They need to be disempowered. They need to be discredited. They need to be exposed in terms of the evil that they represent and that they're trying to wreak upon the land. So, yeah, I mean, I think thank you again. I get to say that <laughs> <laughs> on the air, no curse words, and, you know, I'm going to get by the FCC. And <laughs> we have to be censored over there in middle America, so... <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I I agree. Um, it doesn't take much for me to uh, boycott the NFL since I don't watch that much football. But I, it's good. I have an extra reason not to watch it now. Um, is there anything else that you want to talk about in terms of um, specific uh, projects that yeah, you would like to... One little pet yeah, yeah, project I little. wanted to talk about. Uh, International Bridges to Justice... Look us up, ibj.org, www. Um, we are an organization that for the past oh, 20 years or so, we've been trying to support defenders around the world in various places. We started off in China, uh, Thailand, Vietnam, and Cambodia, and we expanded into uh, Africa for the most part, Congo, Burundi, um, and the Middle East, um, certainly uh, Pakistan and South Asia. We're in we're almost all three countries in South Asia. We're in Bangladesh, India. In any event, the project is a project that was meant to uh, deal with and minister to the needs of prisoners all over the world, people that are in prison, uh, whether it's rightfully or wrongfully, the conditions that they're in. So IBJ.org, International Bridges to Justice, we were um, a group that was founded out of the Harvard Divinity School. Most of the people on the board originally were clergy, ex except for me. Um, and um, the mission is apparently consistent with many Christian religions, um, and that is to minister to the needs of prisoners, people that are without power and uh, without access. So um, it's, a, it's a nonprofit group. We do a lot of fundraising and stuff like that. It's my, sort of my pet project. We're out of Geneva, so you don't have to worry about being considered a spy or something like that or giving money to some kind of you know, <laughs> subversive organization. In a sense, um, the, the one message I do have for us, we've, we've been around, I guess, for about 20 years, but our latest project, certainly for the last five years, we want to try to eliminate investigative torture uh, all over the world. Yeah. It is actually unlawful in most places in the world. The vast majority of them, the people, the governments, they violate their own laws, laws all the time. That's what Defenders is about. It's basically just holding people in power accountable to their own standards, their own uh, standards of treatment of human rights. So the element of social justice and human rights is um, right on the cutting edge when a person is imprisoned many, in many places without any kind of notice, due process, or even any good reason. Um, it does happen. We need to have the legal profession, the lawyers, involved with um, understanding that the human rights issue can be dealt with by a simple rule of law analysis, um, and that's what we're working on. We're trying to eliminate investigative torture um, in the 21st century, if we can do it, and we've got to start by doing it right here in the United States. Absolutely. Could you repeat the... Um the title of the organization again. Oh, it's International Bridges to Justice, IBJ. Dot com. Uh, dot com, yeah. IBJ.com. 
Look great. us up. We got a, a great website. Uh, there's a TED Talk. Our founder, Reverend Karen Che, uh, her TED Talk on the website is, was the number 13 um, web, uh, TED Talk of 2013. Oh, great, great. So check we'll definitely check that out. Yeah. Uh, thank you. So I'm so. Thank you. I'm so happy to know you, (laughs) and it's so awesome to (laughs) see you perform and talk about everything. Um, Yeah, that's super great. Thank you. I just think it's so beautiful that (laughs) how how much you encompass through your life. I mean, it's not. It's about (laughs) yes, your own uh, evolution and uh, politics, but also it's very broad. Of course, because of your work, how much you're. As a lawyer, how much you've been exposed to, but uh, that you still stand and continue to speak is is very inspirational. Uh, and I, thank you I, for I that. Had a <laughs> Absolutely, I feel like we could say the same thing about you, Nobuko, and my mom. Yeah, true. Um, but yeah, it's very inspirational. Thank you, Mia, so much. Um, so let's move on to Nobuko. <laughs> uh, Another legend. This is such a heavy show. It's kind of crazy. <laughs> I'm still like kind of digesting it all. Um, so we have Nobuko, uh, an artivist uh, that your work spans so many years and so many communities and so many incredible issues. Uh, it's funny. I don't think I've ever told you or talked to you about uh, the liner notes in Grain of Sand and how much it blew my mind to read them recently as an adult um, and how much it totally makes sense today it, and, and the idea that you wrote that in your 20s? No, no. no. I was a little old. I mean, the three of us uh, actually, you know... Chris Hijima, I have to give him, I want to bring him in the room. Yeah. Because Chris, uh, Chris was a, an amazing singer and both poet and a politi- political because his family was very political in New York City. Uh, uh, they, his mom was a communist, and uh, uh, these Nisei, second-generation Japanese-Americans that I met when I went to New York in uh, 1969 and 1970 uh, blew my mind because we thought as activists we were inventing the wheel. And here we meet these elders who are in their 40s and who are and 50s and who are uh, have been in the struggle to for human rights uh, and civil rights uh, for many 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 years and had taken risks uh, to to speak out. And we're now looking at the Black Panthers, where they were looking at what the, the U.S.-China, uh, U.S.-Japan Treaty, mm-hmm. all of these things that were very contemporary at that time, mm-hmm. uh, and um, and we're taking a stand on it. So that was very inspiring to see. And so Chris Ijima, whose whose parents were involved in this group called Asian Americans for Action. Uh, happened to be a poet, happened to be a, a singer and a guitar player. Uh, and I didn't even know he, he did that until we went to Chicago. And he didn't know that I sang until uh, we went to Chicago and met with Asian-American activists from the West Coast and brought together both of these uh, East and West Coast activists together for the first time in 1970, the summer of 1970. <clears throat> and without a plan without uh, 
you know, about thinking about culture or anything like that. We were thinking about, you know, changing the world. And we went to visit the Black Panthers who had just lost uh, their leader, Fred Hampton. We, we, and they, they greeted us like brothers and sisters. We walked through the streets and came upon this group of Native Americans who had erected a huge teepee right in front of Wrigley's Field and were fighting for better uh, housing for Native people in Chicago. And then we go back to our uh, uh, to to uh, this this uh, church that we were sleeping on the floor and and greeting all of our brothers and sisters for the first time. And late at night, Chris brings out his guitar. And he and he just starts fooling around. And then we just started uh, creating a song, sort of spontaneously. And the next day, we sang it for this gathering of not only uh, younger Asian-American activists, but the Japanese-American Citizens League. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and here we were, this scruffy, you know, couple, <laughs> you know, long hair and beard. And, uh, and, and we sang this song. Um, actually, it was called The People's Beat, based on what Fred Hampton used to talk about, mm -hmm. The People's Beat, listening to The People's Beat. And that was the beginning of, of this moment of realizing that song was a powerful means of communication. When we sang it in front of this group in Chicago, it was like it was a flash of light that came through every electricity that came through everyone. idea of, of being half the world, which uh, we had always been called a minority. We've been, that's been pointed, we grew up, you're a minority, you're a minority, you're a minority, you know, you're the yellow peril. And to say, you know, we are half the world was a powerful statement at that moment to realize when we look beyond uh, the United States, yeah, we look at the world, actually we're more than half the world, so... Uh, but now, uh, within the United States, we're coming at that moment. We're, we're going to be more than half as people of color. And, and this is created, creating a lot of fear around us and, uh, because the tables are now turned. And um, so I believe this is where a lot of this, uh, the, the, the Trump phenomena is, is uh, sort of this undercurrent of fear. Uh, that the we the minority is becoming a new minority. Absolutely. Um, we could talk a little bit more about Grain of Sand and maybe another track you want to play, okay. or um, <laughs> or we could talk about um, what it means to be an artivist, or we can talk about both. Um, we can. Well, I, I just want to build on uh, this idea of, you know. The three of us being sort of elders now, and it's hard to uh, <laughs> to say that word sometimes because you don't really feel that way. You still feel uh -huh. like you're looking at the world with fresh eyes. Yeah. And but how important it was for me to look at the Nisei in New York and say, "Oh my God, these people have been active, you know, for you know half their lives, and now we're looking, and now we're looking at ourselves and saying." This connection between the younger generation and ourselves is really important. 
because this link is what's going to connect you to uh, to the past, what we've been trying to build in the past, and carrying it forward in the future. That you're not inventing the wheel. You're continuing a sort of tradition yeah. of social change that we have been a part of. Absolutely. We didn't start it. We've just been a part of it. And that con continuum is what I'm really interested uh, in thinking about and building uh, as we move forward uh, in our in our whatever is left in our lives, and we should be grateful. The three of us are really healthy and strong, still on our feet and still kicking. So um, I want to talk a little bit about how music uh, has been a link to uh, a, a way, a powerful way of linking with other communities. Yeah. Um, that uh, even in New York, when I was living in New York, I lived in a neighborhood that was Puerto Rican and Dominican on the Upper West Side. So. Uh, you know, and actually, it was the first time I ever felt like I was living in a neighborhood, a real hood, you know, <laughs> where I could sit on the porch and talk to people and really meet. Uh, and we started noticing, because we were, my brother and I was living in this apartment, and we were having parties on the weekend with Asian Americans who needed desperately a way of coming together. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and these parties were getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And we finally decided, because we started seeing that the Puerto Ricans and Dominicans were taking over these buildings. And this is a, this is a uh, <laughs> present uh, situation now, because they are pushing us out of neighborhoods. And, um, and we're not able to find places to live, to, to exist. But these people in New York City, we're saying, uh, we're, we're going to take these neighborhoods back. And they were doing it in the middle of the night. They would take over these empty buildings that were, uh, and they would uh, start moving families in. And uh, the city couldn't really move people out. It looked very bad to move children and families out of these buildings. And uh, so we went to them and said, can you help us and find a, a storefront so we could have a gathering place for Asian Americans? Mm -hmm. And they said, oh, sure, this is El Comité, this Latino group. And they took us around the neighborhood and said, oh, you know, this is a perfect place for you, the storefront on 88th in Amsterdam. Uh, you know, it had a, and, and, and they helped us take over this place in the middle of the night. And we, uh, we cleared off the, out the, the storefront and we settled in this place and we wanted to give it a name that would be powerful. And so we, 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 we landed on a name that Malcolm X, uh, the phrase that Malcolm X used to use, chickens come home to roost. And that was the name <laughs> of our storefront, chickens come home to roost. <laughs> Except this, this, what happened is the El Comité used to call us the chickens. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> we said, Wait a minute. But anyway, we, we were exposed to a lot of... Uh, uh, of Latino people, of course, and we started wanting a way of communicating. And they had created, along with my brother helping, they created a store, for, I mean, a cafe, a beautiful cafe. Uh, they would gather, you know, these these spools and create the tables and, and chairs and, and, and entertainers and, and musicians from of, with uh, Nueva Cancion would come and sing there from Cuba, Puerto Rico, Peru, uh, from all over Latin America. It was a very powerful uh, moment, and we were listening to this music. So Chris comes in one day, and he's got the beginning of a song in Spanish. 
and we started, uh, we built on this song, and, uh, and I want to play you this song because it was sort of our entrance to the hearts, I think, of Latino people in New York City. Somos asiáticos. <laughs> we are Asians. About uh, a little bit more about grain of sand, just a little bit more. Sure. I'm sure you're tired of talking about it. Since no. <laughs> no. Okay. Actually, it's you know it's sort of interesting because at the time when we started writing these songs, <clears throat> we were very aware that that we had no music in our past that really reflected who we were, and we never thought we would have any kind of music that would last into the future. So the fact that this <laughs> These songs have lasted 45 years. It's sort of 47 years, actually. Yeah. It's sort of amazing that you can listen to it, and it's still, it, to me, it, it stands up. Good. So yeah. some of it it still sounds in, great in, yeah. uh, in time. And uh, you know, maybe we don't. We'll never have our own uh, a Stevie Wonder or whatever. <laughs> but uh, uh, I consider, you know. Chris, uh, sort of our our Stevie Wonder, you know, he he was able to have the groove and the the funk and the music, you know, and uh, uh, and that was important to him, and that, and that is connects us also to black music, mm-hmm. because where does it come from, uh, that groove, and also to Latino music, you know, so anyway, yeah. I think uh, I love how you refer to Chris Ijima as our Stevie Wonder or our James Taylor. James Taylor. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think that's the perfect description. Um, and now, I mean, it's so impressive, all of you, to have such a long-lasting uh, career in this fight and how it always changes. Um, I mean, it doesn't change, it just grows, I guess. Um, And, you know, it starts with civil justice, and now it moves, it then turns into environmental justice, it turns into um, so many different avenues, just even creating a space or participating more in community. Um, So I think, Nobuko, we could talk about your uh, environmental work. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> Unless you still want to talk about grain of sand, which yes. I feel like I can talk about it forever. <laughs> well, you know, it is. The work is evolving as you live mm-hmm. and as, as the world changes around you. You're listening uh, as an artist or as a human being. You're listening to the social um, happenings around us, and, and we're reacting to that. And I... I you know, some people just label me as a grain of sand in that stuck in the past, and and I really, I feel like I'm moving forward mm-hmm. all the time. And and <clears throat> sort of in my middle life, uh, I'd like to sing, uh, uh, play you a song uh, based on a newspaper article I wrote. Uh, I mean, I read in uh, about this young child in um, Brazil uh, who was a native. Uh, Brazilian and Indian, and she hung herself at a very young age. 
uh, and there was a sort of a there were many people hanging themselves in this village and in these tribes because their land was being taken away from them. And uh, it just struck me so deeply uh, how environmentally, what we're doing uh, to this planet. And this was in 1996 that I wrote this. And uh, even if we don't play the whole thing, I'd like to. Yeah, I'd like absolutely. To play this. It's called Fortunata. Actually, there's a lot of Japanese who live in Brazil. My grandfather's brother actually went there when, when uh, he came here. His brother went there and, to, and has a farm in Sao Paulo. So uh, there's this connection also of Japanese people in Brazil. But anyway, so, so the music continues. Oh, that's <laughs> and great. Grows to, and, uh, this, this is part of an album called To All Relations that can be found on Apple uh, iTunes and uh, what's the other one? Um, anyway, it can be found on iTunes uh-huh. to all relations. Awesome. Mm. Thank you. Um, really beautiful. Um, we have, we can do a bunch of things. I feel like I don't want I feel weird taking charge of you professionals. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you, we could talk about, or we could do uh, Black Lives Matter next, if you want to talk about that. Uh, a little live performance. Uh, Mia and Nancy will uh, be your backup vocals. Okay. Uh, yeah, we can we, do that. We could, you want to uh, do that? Okay. Um, do you want to do you want to talk about the song a little bit, uh, or do you want to talk about it after? Let me. Uh, I, I want this. This piece is sort of a tribute to my uh, mother-in-law, Mamie Kirkland. Uh, she. We just finished celebrating her 109th birthday on September 3rd, uh, and she's a pretty amazing uh, woman. She only recently agreed to a walker, uh, but Mamie's taken me some places I'd never, ever have gone without her. Um, for years, my husband uh, had heard stories about how her family fled Mississippi. Her father and his friend were being chased by the Klan, and he came and rushed in late at night and told her mom to back up the kids and to take the morning train to St. Louis. So Mamie was seven at the time, and uh, the friend of the father who left with him came back to Ellisville, Mississippi, four years later, and was lynched in one of the most brutal lynchings. So one day, Tarabu, my husband, found this website called the Equal Rights Initiative. Do you know about them? Yeah, Brian Stevenson. Yes. So they have documented over 4,000 lynchings in America. And he put in Ellisville, Mississippi, and up popped a newspaper headline. It said, John Hartfield will be lynched by Ellisville mob. Wow. he he ran with his computer to his mom's room. I guess she stays with us six months out of the year. He, He says, is this your friend? Is this your father's friend, John? And she said, Hartfield. And at that moment, Tarabu knew we all had to go to Mississippi. And he knew that his mom had to go back there with him. 
at first she resisted because like a lot of black people, she said, I don't want to see it on a map. Right. But every morning I would show her newspaper clipping, a newspaper with these police killings uh, of black people. And uh, she realized that what happened to her family in Mississippi was happening to black people here and now all over this country. So when she was 107, we went to Mississippi 100 years after she had left. In Ellisville, Mississippi, we went to the very place where the lynching happened. The gum tree where they hung Hardfield was gone. But the hotel with the balcony where they displayed him to the crowd was still there. I was trying to imagine what kind of hate does it take to grow a town of 1,200 to 10,000 in 24 hours. What kind of hate does it take to hang a human being, shoot him 2,000 times, burn him, cut his limbs to sell his souvenirs? We made a circle on the sacred ground where John Hartfield was sacrificed. I held Mom's hand as Tarabu poured a libation and spoke a few words of Hartfield and the many other victims of America's hatred. And Mom later said, that could have been my father. And she said, we've got a lot of work to do. Notice she said, we, at 107, Mamie Kirkland, right on. Wow. That was incredibly moving. <laughs> so, you know, we continue to change and we continue to be influenced by the world around us and our lives, our personal lives, Mia, all of us. And uh, for me, you know, living, being part of a black family and having four grandchildren who are not only black and Japanese, but also Muslim, <laughs> is a continual journey uh, to see for their future, for our future, for all young people, um, that they have a way to live in a safe and loving world. Speechless after that. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot to digest. Um, Thank you. I uh, we could we could now talk about uh, bambutsu, okay, if you'd like, uh, which um, has my mom. Um, Mia, if you'd like to join in at any time, I mean, it's a free for all right now. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I wanna, I just wanna. Um, so, how is uh, being a person of color and the environment fitting together. Mm -hmm. Well, we know now that communities of color are the most fragile, the most affected by the environmental 
injustices going on in the world. They, they have the most pollution. They suffer from not having good food there. They, they suffer from having, uh, uh, you know, communities that are really uh, left on their own. You know, they don't have stores that have fresh vegetables. Uh, and, and they have all these fast food places around them. So there is a big movement now to bring uh, environmental justice to communities of color. And, um, and as Japanese Americans, we've lived in the corridors, in the limited corridors, uh, where uh, the laws were made in the, uh, that kept us from spreading out into greater Los Angeles. So Boyle Heights was a very important place for us. After the war, my family came to live in Boyle Heights. I don't know where your family went, Mia. East L.A. as well. East L.A., yeah. yeah. So uh, Japanese and, 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 and Latinos had a, had a long history <coughs> together. Little Tokyo and uh, East L.A. is connected by a bridge, mm-hmm. the First Street Bridge. It's just a walk across. And, 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 and we, I went to school in Boyle Heights and, and grew up eating Mexican food and... and uh, um, Went to a dance school. Actually, there was in Boyle Heights was the first place I went to a dance school. Oh, really? Uh, that was run by a Jewish family, mm-hmm. Jewish woman, and so the Jews and the and the uh, Latinos, Russians also were in Boyle Heights as long uh, as well as, as Latinos and uh, Mexicans mainly, and Japanese. And then you cross the bridge, and there we are. Uh, little Tokyo, where the Atomic Cafe. Uh, where, when, when did the Atomic Cafe come to Little Tokyo? Um, back in 1946, right after World War II. Right. But getting back to uh, what you were saying, you know, I know that Zen and I, we grew up over there on Second and St. Louis. We had an apartment yes. there, and um, my mom used to visit a lot uh, where my aunt was living on right right behind the Hollenbeck police station on 1st in St. Louis. And the proprietor of that property was a Jewish woman. And she just opened up the doors, you know, for us because she knew oppression. Yes. You know? So, uh, if anything, uh, yeah, I still frequently go over there. <laughs> and uh, it's so marvelous what you do in collaboration of music and arts with all the multicultures that you're doing. So... So, you know, also uh, what's now people call Browns- Bronzeville, mm-hmm. the strip along Jay Central Shotman. Avenue and San Pedro, mm-hmm. was also part of the, uh, what do they call those laws that kept us? Uh, restrictive covenants. Restrictive covenants, yes, yes that uh, kept um, people of color basically right. living yeah. in the ghetto, right? Yeah, it was making sure that you didn't live too close to the white people is what That's the whole right. idea of it was. Right, and when what, when was when were those laws lifted? Well, they they were challenged in the court. I believe the first one was the Mendez decision. Probably it was brought by a Chicano family, and uh, they they um, they broke through. They said it was unconstitutional, essentially. So that was lifted at that point. Although those covenants remained in the contract, real estate contracts, for years afterwards, they just were illegal. So it was only in the '60s, I think, or. or in yeah. the 60s that this, these laws were yeah, lifted. Yeah, might have been the late 50s, 60s, someplace in there, and that, that yeah. remember exactly. So I know that my family lived on the avenues uh, 
uh, near Adams, up and down, and Jefferson, up and, and down. So we lived in, in communities with black people as well. Uh, and again, because those are the places that we were allowed to live in. So we've had this uh, history of interconnection uh, and intersectional uh, history. And some of that jumps over into music, of course. Uh, and I met Quetzal Flores uh, of the band Quetzal, Quetzal. and he, uh, I was at the time uh, writing Obon music, which is uh, these circle dances for this uh, Buddhist celebration uh, of memorializing our, our ancestors. We dance in the circle uh, in the summertime to remember our ancestors. And he invited me to a Fandango class, which is a circle of, of players of, of, uh, of uh, haranas, these small guitars. Mm -hmm. They circle a, a, a platform. And I said, oh, that's like Obon. We dance around the platform, and you're playing around the platform. What would happen if we brought these two elements together? And he said, yes, <laughs> that's Quetzal. So it started us on this journey. The first th thing we did was, of course, write a song. And this, when, well, when was this? This was five years ago. Uh, and, uh, and the song sounded pretty good. Nancy was on it. Well, you're, we're going to play this for you. And we, we, we did this song, and, uh, of course, it had to have a dance. So we got uh, uh, Elaine uh, uh, Fukumoto to uh, Furumoto. To, to help us create an obon dance that included some of fandango movements. So we were combining the fandango and obon movements. And then, so then we said, okay, we got to have a, a place to do this. So we went to the uh, Japanese American Cultural and Community Center, and they have a circle of bri a bricks uh, a plaza there on 3rd Street and San Pedro, a second, well, between the second and uh, third Street. And this circle of bricks was created by Isamu Noguchi, the sculptor. And to me, that circle was telling us something. <coughs> Why did be. he make this? Yeah, yeah he left a, a diagram for us. <laughs> He's asking us to do something here. He did. He knew that Obon was the circle dances. He wanted people to be doing Obon. We're just adding another element to it. And we're we're using fandango. So the first two years, uh, we did fandango with the Mexican and Japanese community. The third year, we brought in the African American community with African dancers, and we learned <laughs> fandango dances. We learned obon dances. Then we brought them together, and then we learned African dan uh, dances as well. So we got, we're out there on the plaza in October, uh, sweating and dancing. And, and when you sweat and dance together, you cannot uh, be enemies. You, you have to be instant friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you dance together and play music together and you see how we fit together, it's um, really, uh, I think of it almost, it's a, on, on a spiritual level, but also physics, you know? It's that energetic connection. And um, so it's interesting that this piece, uh, Bambutsu, which we uh, grew out of a talk that Reverend Godani at Senjin Buddhist Temple gave to me and Getzal and friends and said, no, this song cannot be a fusion. 
it has to be a conversation. You can't just mush the cultures together. It has to each remain true to its own form. So uh, that was our challenge. And um, Nancy and I have been singing together for quite a while on different occasions. And uh, her voice just really carried this song so beautifully. Um, and uh, we couldn't live without Nancy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, she's, she's, uh, she's our fire. And um, anyway, this song uh, is done at Obon festivals all across L.A. County, 18 uh, Obon festivals in the summertime. I think 10,000 people or so dance this dance every year. It's danced at Nisei Week, at the end of Nisei Week. So hundreds and hundreds of people dance it at Nisei Week. And so we're very grateful that, uh, that, that this Fandango Obon piece, which really announces and celebrates our cultures coming together, uh, and we're going to do this on October 22nd. I'm going to, uh, on October 22nd, on the plaza of the Japanese American Cultural and Community Center at 2 o'clock, we're going to be out there sweating and dancing together. And I want to invite everybody to come into that circle, because in that circle, everyone can be seen mm -hmm. and everyone belongs. And it's especially important today as our government is trying to chase away and, and, and deport Americans who look like us and who deserve to be here, just as the Europeans made their way here and made their, um, <laughs> and held on to this land, we also have a right to hold on to this space. So these spaces that we, that we honor, uh, like this circle and this plaza in Little Tokyo, uh, is very important to us. And we invite you all to come and, and dance in this circle, a very simple dance. It's called Bambutsu no Tsunagari, which means 10,000 things all connected. Radio, you probably couldn't have seen it, but I was doing this amazing dance. <laughs> well, the song was going on. I think everybody was dancing. My mom was too. Um, so we we have my mom, Atomic Nancy, uh, here again at Dev Lab. Uh, hey, I love how. Uh, you've been on Dev Lab. This is maybe your fourth. Fourth time, yeah, maybe probably the yeah. fourth interview. I've had, um, I've had the honor and the privilege to spin some of the old records, which you know I still have that collection, boxes and boxes uh, from the jukebox. So if anything, yeah. I really took care of them and kept them because I knew that was my. That was my calling is just music. And I knew that at a very, very young age no. when I was about... I was not um, a healthy child, and my dad uh, always worried about me being sick. And we were one of the first uh, restaurants next to, like, uh, I think, Cantor's and all these other old establishments. But we were one of the very few that had the first jukebox, mm -hmm. okay. And what year was this? This was, uh, like, right after, what was the jukebox? 
like in the late 40s, late 40s, early 50s. And if anything, my when I was born, like in 1953, um, I was a couple of years old where I was able to use the little tiny phonographs. And my dad would try to entertain me because I was always home and I couldn't really go to school. Uh, he would bring the Billboard magazine. And uh, I would just kind of listen to the radio look at the top 100 of the uh, bullets and see which one would hit the top 10. But he would bring home all these records, and uh, I would be the one that playing on them, you know. I was the only one, you know, that was really interested. And um, that was my entertainment since I was a young kid. I mean, really young. Yeah. That jukebox was absolutely the best jukebox I have ever seen any place, not just in this city. It had songs that nobody else on any other jukebox any place had. I mean, things like Elvis is Everywhere by Mojo Nixon. That was on her jukebox. Anything by The Clash. She had the punk locals on that jukebox. Nobody else had that stuff. You had to go to the Atomic Cafe, drop a quarter in the machine to hear the kind of stuff that you really needed to hear. Yeah, <laughs> great jukebox. Legendary, biggest jukebox ever. It really, I mean, you can't really find a space like that, an all-inclusive inclusive space like that, for this specific clientele, which was mm-hmm. everybody in the community, all creatives, gangsters, politicians. Like nobody mm-hmm. hangs out like that anymore. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then to have a jukebox that reflects that community, I think, is so um, needed. But I don't know if it would really exist today, or it could exist, or it could stay it should special. Exist, it though. should exist. I think it would be great. <laughs> they were the only place that really had a, a solid core of Japanese soul food. You know, straight <laughs> out of the hood, straight out of the community, the kind of stuff people put together at home. Yeah. And so I, I didn't know of another restaurant. Other Japanese restaurants were classic Japanese restaurants, teriyaki, you know, that type of thing. But the Atomic Cafe had the kind of concoctions that I would make at home. Like and wiener gotcha? Go, exactly. You know, some gotcha, chashu gotcha. Some uh, chicken. Yeah. <laughs> that was an amazing place. You know, yeah, well, that's the reason it was such a hangout for so many different people. I mean, not just rock and rollers, punk rockers, and like you said, gangsters, politicians, <laughs> uh, celebrities, actors, and people like that. You just come out to the Shana Cafe, I remember. It became such a, a target. Such a destination mm-hmm. for, for people. During, especially during the 70s, 80s, I thought. You know, because I'd cruise by there at nighttime. I'd just go visit my homies in the jail there, visiting my shut-ins. And I'd, <laughs> I would usually come down there about 9 or 10 o'clock, hit that jukebox, man, hit honky-tonk women, and I'm ready to go. <laughs> yeah, and Amir was always on the jukebox. She was yeah. just always, like, plugging, you know, always yeah. playing. And it was... When one would walk in, I'm talking about like back in when the punk movement was starting to happen 80s. in the mid 70s and early 80s. Yeah. Um, when you open up that door, it was like the volume was up at 10. <laughs> and, you know, I was hoping to scare people off, but, but people just started coming in. Mm-hmm. There was a line outside to get in. But, you know, it was just an unusual place and a, an eclectic place. Yeah. Yeah. Also, it was open really late, right? Yeah. Yes. And you know what? Back in the old days, you know, the the punk movement during that time, before uh, around 1960 until it closed, was from 4 in the afternoon 
it would open until four in the morning, mm-hmm. seven days a week. But dad had it um, 24 hours back in the day. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, he just had it going on, you know. So it was mom and dad, both of them cooking. I still have those pictures of them, you know, uh, in the in back of the kitchen. My mom and this, uh, you know, white little... Um, you know, waitress outfit and her hair and her lipstick and dad with the chef hat, you know. But I still have those pictures. And it's just a, a lot. It's so much history there. But it was the place where most of the JAs, uh, World War II vets uh, that would come, I mean, like, it was for everyone, um, and everybody was welcome. Like and everybody that. was treated the same. Everybody was I treated the same. I love the story of, I guess, in the 80s. Uh, I, I, I maybe was there, but I was too young to remember this firsthand. But um, where, you know, there, it was like a Saturday night, and there was like a line out the door, and this guy tried to cut the line to take pictures, and oh, you, like, yeah. kicked him out. <laughs> yeah, I did. And, but then my dad was like, uh, that was Andy Warhol. Oh, wow. And, oh, and no. my mom was really? like, I don't care. <laughs> he was just standing like, and I guess he was trying to take pictures for an article for Rolling Stone oh. about downtown L.A. Uh-huh. and the, how, you know, it was like the punk epicenter mm-hmm. for the time. And he was going to Chinatown and like at Madame Wong's and Al's Bar. So then I found the issue that he shot, you know, really? uh, oh for the story. Goodness. And all the pictures of the Atomic are from the outside. <laughs> I, you know what? I remember uh, specifically, if I could do a CD or a, a picture of every booth, because we had about uh, seven booths, mm-hmm. who was in it? And I could just see that one window. We had this window. And I saw him just, like, peering out like this, <laughs> trying to look in to see what the hell was going on. And, you know. And it was him with that white hair. Yeah, and I'm going, oh. Nice. And, you know, in booth two would be Linda Ronstadt and Jerry Brown. <laughs> they freaking took up that whole booth, and she only had a glass of milk. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then in booth one, I remember David Burden from Talking Head. And when I took his order, this is what he said. He says, I would like an egg foo young and a glass of water. And that was it. I'm going, okay, okay. And, you know, like towards the end of the, you know, like around about two or three in the morning, I would see Rodney Bingenheimer. And he was the one that actually got me going on the, uh, uh, all the punk things because I was working back in the kitchen and I would have that punk music going on on K-Rock. But, yeah, he would, I remember his order, two eggs, over medium with French fries and the, and a piece of toast. That was his thing. Yeah. <laughs> Rodney. Yeah. Um, I think we should talk about. I mean, let's quickly talk okay. about uh, Grandpa and Grandma, your mom and dad, who, um, who who opened the Atomic Cafe, uh, who I think you know also <clears throat> very punk of them to open a place called the Atomic Cafe right after the war, I think is super, um, it makes sense that, you know, when they had it, it was this place that was for everybody. Everybody was treated the same. It was all inclusive. 
and slightly anti-establishment. And then when you took it over and made it into this in, punk institution, and uh, and it has it's the same concept. No, I agree. I mean, yeah. the punk aspect of it, just calling it the Atomic Cafe was totally punk. I mean, yeah. for a Japanese-American right. couple who connects to you know, the annihilations in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, to talk about is to basically not hide from it and sort of like adopt it, embrace it, and make it our own, yeah. our own cafe. Yeah. Um, and so I've always felt it was kind of punk, though, really, <laughs> to just adopt <laughs> that and just, you know, make it our own. It's like I said, this is our cafe now. This is our concept. And we were embracing it. We're yeah. not going to hide from it. There, you know, in the beginning, there was this little mushroom cloud above the neon. <laughs> and so, you know, like, I, I believe some of the community folks were going, God, Matoba son, isn't that a little rough? You know? Yeah, you know? yeah that's a little he harsh. He says, yeah. <laughs> um, he says, totally well, you punk. know, yeah. and I, I used to ask him, why did you call this place Atomic Cafe? He says, well... Nobody forgot about the atomic bomb, so nobody should forget about our food. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting uh, reason. <laughs> but, but Dad was a, re- a real rebel. He mm-hmm. really yeah, was. Like yeah, he yeah. didn't really care. I mean, he opened up this place like, look at those cockamamie hours, like for the afternoon to four in the morning, seven days a week. But he always thought about the community, though. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just know that Dad, why... Because he thought about the seniors, especially on Thanksgiving and New Year's Day, where the Ozoni, mm-hmm. uh, he made it free for everybody, mm-hmm. you know, especially for the people who were seniors in the community that had no family. Mm-hmm. So that's why Dad did it that way. Right. He always thought about family. Yeah. Great. Um, yeah, there's a lot of history. Let me just say that people forget that the Issei and the Kibei were marginalized during the war. Mm-hmm. In the camps, um, there were certain groups that tried to make sure that they had no say in what was going on in the Japanese-American community because they were so afraid of disloyalty, what they thought, mm-hmm. anybody that had any kind of a connection to Japan. So they were cut off in many ways and marginalized and made um, to... Uh, re- basically, they were, they were kept out of leadership, let's put it that way, in the camps. And that was very much done by design by by some of the operatives from the JECL who just wanted to make sure that only the citizens, only the young people could vote, could have power, and could have any kind of say or leverage. And that was done to marginalize the very people that after the war we needed the most to take care of because mm-hmm. they had been the most excluded, the Issei and the, and the Kibu, who are people that were born in Japan uh, and people that were educated in Japan. Anybody that had that kind of a connection was to some extent, seen as an embarrassment to certain elements of the Japanese-American community. And they were marginalized and they were targeted and uh, they were discriminated against, essentially. So the people that ministered to them, including my my dad was a lawyer, and uh, that was his cause celebrity, was the Issei and the Kibe who had been treated the way they were in camp. And so he took them on as his most important task. But let me just say one last thing. (laughs) My dad was a member of the NAACP. My father was an ACLU lawyer. So there's a lot that I take from his legacy, but he understood very well at the time that there's people getting marginalized, people being oppressed. They're the people I need to help. Wow, two hours goes by so fast with you all. Uh, I was nervous that we wouldn't be able to fill it up, but I feel like we could stay another hour. Um, I guess what's so impressive is how you've got, how you have all uh, sustained the energy to do this work for as many decades 
as, um, you know, as you have. And I would like to know what your secrets are. Um, Mom? Okay, yeah, yeah. I just say one thing, and that's in the... The circumstances that you find yourself in is what you have to rise to. If things were just and equal and inclusive and all sorts of things, we probably wouldn't be as active. However, with all that's what's wrong with the world, with this country, with our society, with this presidency, we can't stay quiet. We have to be active. We have to get out and oppose the fascism that's rising up against our people, our country. And we have to be active. And it isn't just something that sustains you. If there was some justice out there, maybe I could rest. Yeah. But because there's so much injustice, so much evil, so much suffering out there, unjust suffering, Mm -hmm. we have to stand up, speak out, march. We have to make sure that we're very vocal and very present and very public with respect to what we do. Because we have to make a difference. We have to fight back. It's coming after people who are vulnerable some of the most vulnerable people among us, those of us who are active and who are connected, have to be active. We have to advocate. We have to confront that which is happening to our people, to all people, because what we do is for the common good. Ultimately, this is what patriotism is all about. It is sacrificing yourself for the common good. It's for throwing away your career like a man like Colin Kaepernick to raise and elevate the issue of police brutality and racism to do that shows how much they care about each other, how much they care about our own people, to stand up and say, we can be better than this. We can make this better, but we can't do it by doing nothing. We can't sit back on our televisions and our radios and say, oh, that's too bad. We have to get out here and make a difference. We have to make a ruckus. We have to make change. It's just necessary because what we confront right now is what's been around for way too long. We're still chipping away at it, but I'm not going to stop, and that's what sustains me. Yes, we're not going to go backwards. Exactly. We're not going to let it happen. Right. And because of all of these issues, uh, and what I do for a profession for over 30 years is I'm a certified addiction specialist and working in drugs and alcohol, it's affected so many young people, and now the crisis and the epidemic has risen even more. So that gives me more fortitude to keep pushing on to try to help as many people as I can. And if I made one person... Uh, accomplish their goals and make them feel that they're validated and that's what it that's why people feel like they need to use drugs because they don't feel that important they feel less than their demeanor you know everything about them and so for me to keep going to work as i know i'm just going to the battlefield and I, this is why i do what i do yeah well looking at all of you is inspiring i mean i mean we keep each other going because um I'm not ready for a rocking chair. I'm sorry. And uh, we got to stay woke, just like you said. We have to uh, stay on our feet if we can. And because we have to do it for future generations. It's not just for us. We have to do it for future generations. It's hard to think that way, um, but it's absolutely true right now. It's critical that we think about the future like Native people said in the seven generations. We're not going to go backwards. Fantastic. Um, I just want to shout out to Sean Curio, who I know is probably listening. uh, Cafe Troy. Cafe Troy. Um, I also want to thank my friend and colleague, Marin Levinson, uh, who pushed me to do this uh, Japanese American (laughs) project um, where I photographed everyone. Um, I also want to 
shout out to Mike Morase and Kristen Fukushima and Evelyn Yoshimura, Tracy Kato Kirayama, Kathy Masuoka, Tracy Ichigo, and Sean Mura, everybody else who's part of that project. Um, thank you, DubLab. Uh, we're going to end on that. Uh, Thank you so much, Ale, for having us. Thank um, you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, everyone, for coming over and, uh, and creating this wonderful two hours of, of uh, programming. It was really inspirational. And for those out there that uh, weren't familiar with a lot of uh, the topics we discussed today, uh, there you go. It's all there. Uh, it's gonna there's be, a lot more. <laughs> there's a lot more, exactly. <laughs> okay. uh, but it's, it's a good way. You know, it's a, it's a, I, I love that uh, a place like Develop offers that opportunity for a kind of long-form story. Usually uh, other places is this, you know, uh, snippets, you know, of information and that here we can really expand. And thank you for sharing the live music, the recordings, uh, and the stories. Really appreciate it. Um, you know, please come back soon. Thank you, Ale. <laughs> thank you, Ale. Thank you, Zen. Thank you, Zen. I didn't do anything. <laughs> and for those other tuning in uh, that was uh, Elevation Through Sound here live on Dublab from Los Angeles uh, Zen Sekisawa was the guest host for today with guests Nobuko Miyamoto uh, Atomic Nancy Sekisawa and Mia Yamamoto In Conversation was produced by Dublab, a nonprofit radio station broadcasting live from Los Angeles since 1999. Sound editing and theme song by Matea Bame. For more programming, visit dublab.com. And thank you for listening.